Blog Talk Radio. Choose a clause fighting for justice radio. Don't underestimate the other guys. Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening, as we really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind everybody to check our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. Please let your friends know about the show and let them know that people can listen to our podcast on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed Brightman. Each week analyzes the hottest civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today we're going to analyze four of hot legal stories, and then we will go to Reed's rant. Uh, we're going to start with an interesting story about a tragedy where a grandfather is suing his own grandson in the wrongful death of the grandmother. What a nightmare. Robert, what's going on? Oh, this is a sad story, Reed. Uh, There was an accident in March of this year in a small town in uh, the Chicago area in Illinois. Apparently, a 79-year-old grandmother, Mrs. Soon Cho, gave her keys to the family minivan to her 13-year-old grandson, apparently because she always had difficulty getting the van into gear. The idea being that he was going to start it up, put it in gear for her, and then she was going to take the wheel. Uh, Apparently, according to the police uh, investigation, the teen shifted the vehicle into reverse when his foot was on the gas instead of on the brake. The driver's door was open, and as the grandmother was approaching to take the wheel, the car lurched backwards and knocked her to the ground. She was rushed to the hospital where she died. Now, how old was his uh, grandson? Well, he was only 13 years old, obviously not supposed to be driving the vehicle. Um, The autopsy uh, said that the grandmother's uh, death was accidental, and the teen was actually not charged in the death. Um, However, the grandfather is now suing the grandson, saying that he was uh, negligent in failing to control his vehicle, in failing to warn, and in failing to yield uh, in causing the grandmother's death. What are the issues about suing a 13-year-old? Well, that's a pretty interesting question, and I think there's probably something going on behind the scenes here involving the insurance covering the van. Um, obviously, a 13-year-old boy getting sued by the granddad, um, how is he ever going to respond in damages uh, for, the, for the death of the grandmother? Um, 
it's not exactly as though they can take his uh, paper route money to satisfy a judgment. And what I suspect is going on here is that there's an insurance policy either covering the van or an insurance policy covering the vehicle in the family where the grandson lived, and that's the real target of this lawsuit, that by filing the lawsuit against the grandson, they hope to get the insurance company for either the van or some, somebody else to come in and pay compensation for the death of the grandmother. Do you think they might be successful in that? Well, it all depends on the insurance policy. You know, here at Kuzik Law, we specialize in really examining the insurance policies that cover the people and the vehicles involved in an accident to make sure that, you know, all of the available coverages and compensation can be secured for our client. So in this particular situation, I assume that the grandfather has an attorney who has sat down and has gone through all the coverages and looked at all the policies and has at least some hope that there's a policy out there somewhere that would cover the grandson for having caused this accident that killed his own grandmother. What about comparative negligence? I mean, you'd think the grandmother, may she rest in peace, uh, she shouldn't have been given the keys to a 13-year-old to drive the van. And this is exactly the kind of thing that can happen. You know, a 13-year-old, he might not be very tall. He might not be able to reach the pedals properly and and you know this happened well an interest that's an interesting aspect of this is the comparative negligence or the comparative fault of the grandmother there's a concept in the law of course that says that anybody who's trying to recover if they themselves were somehow responsible or even partially responsible in uh, bringing about the uh, events that caused the injury or death then the amount of damages that could be awarded are reduced proportionately we have that rule here in california um, so here you might have an argument, I'm sure, on behalf of the lawyers that whatever insurance company involved might be appointed to represent this young man to say that, hey, yeah, Mrs. Cho was herself negligent in giving the keys and entrusting the vehicle to a 13-year-old boy who clearly wasn't able to operate the vehicle safety. And there's another interesting issue here. I was reading this police report aspect where they were saying the reason she asked the boy to start the vehicle was because she had trouble getting it into gear, and then that when he put it into reverse, he had his foot on the gas. Now, I'm not sure the year or model of this particular minivan, but most later model vehicles now have interlocks that in order to take the car out of park and put it into reverse, you'd actually have to depress the brake in order to accomplish that. Here, it sounds like the vehicle did not have that interlock, or perhaps it did and it failed. So that may end up proving to be another source of recovery for this grieving grandfather. Yeah, that would be interesting. If, if uh, that is certainly a, a, a modern safety con safety feature on cars. Um, I actually had a situation like that back in 1994 when I I was on a wine trip with my wife and her grandmother and her parents, and she was my girlfriend at the time, and they had me drive because I don't drink. And I remember exactly the same thing. The grandma was getting in the car, and I put the car into reverse, but I had my foot on the brake. Uh, the problem is I had my left foot on the brake, and my right foot hit the gas accidentally, and so the car lurched. Uh, fortunately, Grandma wasn't uh, injured, but it was very scary. Um, so. Well, these facts these facts bring to mind a much more recent tragedy that occurred here in Los Angeles, where the Star Trek actor um, had started his Jeep up yes. and left the Jeep to go get something from the house, and then when he came back, the Jeep somehow got into gear – 
or rolled in some fashion and pinned him against a, uh, a pillar holding up his uh, security gate and actually killed him. And there's the allegation being made in a lawsuit right now on behalf of that young man's parents that the interlock between the uh, transmission for putting the vehicle into reverse uh, was, uh, was defective because it didn't really uh, advise the, the uh, driver as to when the vehicle may have been in gear or in reverse as opposed to park. So it's a common circumstance, more common than people might think, about people actually getting run over by their own cars. What a nightmare. Well, I'm sure that that family is absolutely devastated, and I have a feeling this isn't a... This isn't a case about a grandfather going against his grandson and being upset. It's just a, it's an insurance play. Um, but I hope uh, that that family is able to have some resolution and some peace and they can recover something. Uh, Mark Leonardo, you're going to tell us about a new lawsuit where Domino's Pizza was sued for $100 million in a wrongful death case. Tell us about this. Mark, are you with us? Okay, you know, I guess we'll move on from Mark's story to Robert's story about Saudi Arabia. Robert, why don't we tell why don't you tell us about Saudi Arabia and then we'll get back to Mark's story about dominoes. Okay, well anybody who's been following the news lately knows this. A story has gotten a lot of attention about a bill that was passed allowing the families of the victims of the 9-11 tragedy to sue Saudi Arabia based on the allegation that Saudi Arabian, the Saudi Arabian government may have had some ties to the terrorists that flew the planes uh, that took down those buildings. Um, the bill was called the Ju- is called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, or JASTA, Um, and was passed both houses of Congress by voice vote. Not a single uh, hearing was held. Um, President Obama vetoed the bill um, for a number of reasons, and then the veto was overridden uh, 97 to 1 in the Senate and 348 to 77 in the House of Representatives. So obviously a very politically popular measure, but one that many people are now starting to have second thoughts about. I bet. I, I, I understand that it's it's, it's generated a, a tremendous amount of rhetoric between the two governments, and Saudi Arabia is threatening to sell all of its U.S. assets. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they did have terrorists from Saudi Arabia come over here and bomb our buildings. Uh, it's it's interesting when you when you think about the actual details. You know, should some company from Saudi Arabia who owns a, an office building in Los Angeles, for example, should their asset be seized or frozen uh, as a result of something that that particular company had nothing to do with, but only because the company is from Saudi Arabia? Um, well, what do you think? We have we have some real we have some real interesting issues posed by this. You know, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court, as far back as 1812, has held that under U.S. law, citizens of the United States cannot sue foreign governments in U.S. courts. This is a concept known as sovereign immunity, which has existed for, of course, centuries long before this country was even created, and is actually embodied in U.S. law as a result of cases like the one the Supreme Court decided in 1812, and also something called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which is actually enacted into statute by Congress in 1976. 
And what is sovereign immunity? Well, that's the idea that says that governments typically cannot be held responsible in civil courts in other countries for actions they take in their official capacity as governments. And it is the, the overriding or the overruling of this really century-long principle that has gotten everyone in such an uproar, because I think there's a feeling now that maybe the repercussions of allowing this, uh, is, even if it's so politically popular as allowing the 9-11 families to do it against Saudi Arabia, as to whether or not the United States might eventually regret this, because it could be, itself could become a target of such lawsuits in other countries. Yes, although we don't have too many American terrorists uh, running around blowing up buildings in other countries. But I can well, see that it's think a, about definitely this, slippery suppose, slope. Suppose a drone strike you know, hits a wedding party in Yemen instead of you know, an al-Qaeda chieftain that they were intending to hit. Uh, the principle of sovereign immunity prevents the United States government from being brought into a Yemeni court and be sued for damages. Or suppose uh, you know, uh, somebody who's being detained at Guantanamo uh, and was captured under somewhat suspicious circumstances, say, in Italy, as a matter of fact, which is where one of these suits was previously bought, and the families of the detainee sues the U.S. government in Italian courts, saying that the circumstances of his uh, arrest amounted to kidnapping, and that, therefore, the United States should pay damages. I mean, there's a whole can of worms that could be opened up, especially because it's the United States that has assets and influence and contacts abroad in such so many countries, whereby if these types of suits were to be allowed, it could wind up the United States being on the short end of the stick. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I, I, it's an example of something that might not really be a good idea, might not work, but, you know, our politicians like to do what's popular and what gets votes, and sometimes they don't think, uh, they don't think past that. They just do what they think will get them elected. Well, it is an election year, and you have to look at the way this was passed with uh, voice votes and without hearings, especially considering that it's overturning 200 years of even American law, um, and just think that it sort of looked like irresistible political catnip for both parties, really, in this election year. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's another interesting aspect to this, which is that President Obama, in his veto message to Congress, uh, said that one of the reasons that the, he was vetoing it was because it interfered with his ability to conduct foreign policy. Now, that's another really equally strong principle of American jurisprudence, which is that the conduct of foreign policy lies solely with the executive branch, with the presidency. And right. if he can make a claim that this interferes with his ability to conduct that foreign policy, I think we may be looking at the groundwork or the grounds for a constitutional challenge to be made to this, uh, this law by the Obama administration or by some subsequent administration. So questionable whether we'll ever actually see it implemented. Yeah, and so the, and the Congress passed it over his veto, right? Oh, they passed it by overwhelming margins over his veto, even though there were many foreign policy professionals in both uh, Democratic and Republican circles who were saying, whoa, slow down, take another look, guys. This actually may wind up hurting the United States far more than it winds up affecting anybody else. Right. I have a feeling that that's true. Yeah, but all these politicians, there's no way they're going to vote against that and say they're against people that are victims of 9-11. Right. Not, not in an election year. 
Right. Well, you know, this, this creates some real problems because it has that great name, Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And so everybody assumes that, well, this is only going to be for countries who obviously have had a hand in uh, committing terrorist acts or financing or supporting them in some fashion. Now, interestingly enough, Saudi Arabia is not on the list of countries that the U.S. State Department uh, accuses of being involved in state-sponsored terrorism. And also, of course, Saudi Arabia is a very close ally of the United States and actually is considered a very close ally of the United States in combating terrorism. So I think the Obama administration in its veto message is laying the groundwork for a legal challenge to this, but is also trying to point out that these principles of law really protect the United States far more than it might protect any other country on the international stage because of how many interests we have and how, how broad our reach is both politically and economically. That's amazing. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to our next story, which is Mark's story about Domino's Pizza. Domino's was sued for $100 million in a wrongful death case uh, by the family of a Wilmington, North Carolina man. Uh, Mark, what happened? Yeah, this, this is, like you said, this is in Wilmington, North Carolina, where a young girl was a pizza delivery driver for Domino's Pizza. And uh, she ended up pleading guilty to involuntary manslaughter in the death of a 36-year-old man. And uh, the parents of that man have now filed a wrongful death lawsuit against both the driver and Domino's. And in the complaint, it states that this driver, she, was, uh, she had just dropped off uh, a pizza and she was on her way back to the store. And she was traveling about 45 miles per hour down a Wilmington street and the speed limit was only 25. And then she got a phone call on her cell phone. And when she reached over to the other seat to pick up the phone, she drifted into oncoming traffic. And when she looked up, next thing you know, she was, uh, uh, this gentleman was standing next to his car. He's about to get into his car. Um, and she struck him, hit the car, and then she ran into a parked car, and she ended up killing him. So she hit him about 40 miles per hour, and then he died from those injuries. And this young girl, her name is Brittany Botterford. She's only 22, and she has now pled guilty to felony involuntary manslaughter. Oh, my God. Which is, and that's the unintentional and unlawful killing of a person by another um, in an act that the killer knew was dangerous or could be a threat to the lives of others. And she could be sentenced up to uh, almost five years in jail for doing this. So here we have someone using their cell phone while driving, killing someone and destroying the lives of someone's family. And now she's likely going to end up spending a significant period of time in jail for doing, you know, for answering a phone call on her cell phone. Um, so is Domino's family, on the hook for the damages well, she caused? Well, the, man said, uh, the, man, the man's family claims that, that Domino's hired this driver with a poor driving record. He didn't monitor her or her training. Um, and apparently there had been several complaints about her speeding and erratic driving and her manager had even told her on a previous occasion, if you keep speeding, you're going to kill someone, and then you won't be able to live with yourself. So that's exactly what happened here. Um, the manager in the previous call actually made her call and apologize to the person that had complained about her. So I think, uh, I think when, when someone is acting in the course and scope of their employment and they injure someone or kill someone, that's called vicarious liability. So Domino's can be on the hook for this death. What does um, Domino's fact, say? Um, they haven't said anything yet. I haven't, I haven't seen anything from any statements by them. 
Um, but I can tell you that back in 2013, something very similar happened in Texas, and the, and the Texas jury hit Domino's with a $32 million verdict for a very similar wow. type of thing. So uh, it could very well be on the hook for a sizable judgment in this case. What could Domino's have done to protect itself and to avoid this kind of thing? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the complaint says they didn't properly train her. They didn't properly monitor her driving. And they had complaints against her and didn't didn't discipline her, as far as I know, other than all that's been reported is they made her call and apologize, which isn't doing a whole lot. Um, But, you know, maybe they could ban cell phones in the cars. I don't know. But uh, they're going to be on the hook for this, I believe, because, you know, she was an employee. She was in the the course and scope of her employment. And so uh, they're probably going to be held liable. Wait a second. Hadn't she already dropped off the pizza? She was on her way back to the store. She mm. wasn't going so that home. Would still she was still be considered back. part of the job. Yes. Okay. She was going back to probably get you know get more pizzas. You know, I bet you Domino's pizza drivers, just like any other pizza company, they probably get cell phone calls from the manager or the people at the pizza store saying, you know, saying where are you or giving them information. They probably use that cell phone in order to get directions. Um, so it might be that using the cell phone itself is part of the job, which would point to uh, more of a reason to hold Domino's Pizza liable for, for these type of things. But I do know that there are companies out there that sell a product that I fully intend to use with my children when they start driving. And what you do is you put this device in the car, and it makes it so that cell phones won't work in the car. Um, it just jams any cell phone reception. You can't get a text. You can't call out. You can't receive a call And um, while the car is moving, while the car is on. So if a person needs to use their cell phone, they need to pull over, stop, turn the car off, and then their cell phone will work. And I think if more people used a device like that, there would be a lot fewer accidents uh, and I, as much as I use my cell phone in my car, um, I, I would very much support some type of legislation that required that. It's, it's just so many accidents get caused by distracted driving for drivers uh, because of drivers using their cell phones. And it's hard. You know, it's really hard to, to, for people to have uh, the discipline to not use that cell phone you know, because it's, it's, it, it takes too long to pull over and make a call. And, and everybody's in such a rush these days. Well, you know, it's become so common, Reed, that, you know, in all the police reports we get, there's actually a box for the police officer to check off. Was right. any of the drivers using their cell phone, you know? And we have it on our intake sheet here at the office. You know, any, any new case that comes in, we all, that's one of the questions we ask. Was anybody on their cell phone? Because it's such a common thing. It causes yeah. a lot of accidents. It really is. It's it's scary. And, you know, I fear for my children. I really do. Um, you know, they've grown up their entire lives. Uh, cell phones have been a, a main thing in their lives. and uh, it's, part, it's part of their body. It's attached to them, right, by, it, at the wrist. <laughs> it really is. So, you know, they're going to have to not use – well, I'm going to have that device. But the problem is there's a lot of other kids out there that – don't have that device. There's so many people. I can't tell you how many times I'm driving along and I see somebody looking at their cell phone, texting while we're sitting there driving along. And uh, it's just, it's stupid. It really is. People just get 
families get devastated from from these accidents and losses just because of this stupid cell phone. Uh, let's move on to Mark's story about fake accidents. Um, apparently, people uh, create these insurance fraud scenarios with fake accidents to try and defraud the insurance companies out of billions of dollars every year. Tell us about this story. Yeah, let me let me start with it. The statistics are staggering when you think about it. Um, conservatively, the industry says that fraud steals about $80 billion across all lines of insurance. That, you know, that's auto, fire, health, workers' comp, and life insurance, among others. So, you know, $80 billion from people getting... So now, in the area where, you know, where we are concerned, in the auto industry, um, which is you know, near and dear to our heart here at Kuzik Law, um, is property casualty insurance, which also includes homeowners insurance. Um, fraud comprises about 10% of property casualty insurance losses, and sometimes up as high as 20% of the claims that the insurance companies get. And they estimate that uh, last year was about $32 billion in fraud for casualty and property, which is you know, mostly insurance, I'm sorry, mostly auto accident cases. So it's got to the point where 48 states and District of Columbia have all created a, an agency within their state to deal with fraud. And uh, <clears throat> most, most of the states have um, these fraud bureaus just to deal with bogus claims. Um, well, it's so, only I, so wonder, much, I wonder where, this, so where the statistics are coming from because, you know, in our, in our practice, as you know, the insurance companies always are blaming everything on fraud and they're saying, oh, you guys are inflating the damages and you're trying to defraud us. The insurance companies always point the finger everywhere they can to try to reduce the amount of payments they have to make. So if this is just – this is a bunch of data from insurance companies, I view it with suspicion. There's, there's a whole bunch of agencies where I got some of this information from that besides just looking at uh, articles. Um, there's the Insurance Information Institute. There's the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud. You know, there's various organizations out there that keeps track of all these things. Um, that's why I said I, the range was between 10 and 20% of the claims. I just well, wonder how they determine what's fraud and what isn't. Well, and also, isn't it true, though, that a lot of what they call fraud is like, like a body shop, for example, uh, you know, doing an estimate to fix your car and then putting a bunch of stuff in there for new parts that, in fact, they don't even actually replace or, you know, putting in there for damage that actually wasn't a, didn't occur in the accident just so that they can kind of pump up the bill. I mean, not, all, not a lot of this, not all of this fraud is just staged accidents, is it, Mark? No, that's correct. One of the areas that they focus on is what they refer to as, quote-unquote, buildup. And buildup involves inflating an otherwise legitimate claim. And so... You know, as Reed said, that's what the insurance company thinks. You know, they accuse us all the time of every single case we have that, you know, the medical bills are too high, there's too much treatment, they didn't need to do this, they didn't need the surgery, they didn't need to go to that doctor. But that's what they claim is buildup, that, you know, you take someone who's been hurt, they think it's minor, it only requires five treatments of chiropractic care as opposed to 20, things like that. So one of the questions you raised is where are these stats coming from? So, yeah, what they deem is buildup, you know, might not necessarily be buildup. Um, they say one of the areas that where this so-called buildup comes from is mostly with chiropractic therapy and physical therapy or alternative medicine, you know, like acupuncture and things like that. So that's what they they are deeming as uh, fraudulent and, and 
so-called buildup for these soft tissue type injuries. So another so here, excuse by the insurance company to say that, oh, you know, they shouldn't have to pay as much to the injured claimant. Yeah, that's what they do. And you and I deal with that every single day in our job. Every single so, day. <laughs> in California, the, the bureau that we have here, um, I think a couple of years ago, they had 18,000 claims of suspected fraud. And out of that 18,000, they filed 721 cases. And out of the 721, they had 401 arrests. And uh, about 300 of those 400 actually went to, to court and they prosecuted. And, and they uh, it didn't say what I was. It didn't say whether they were convicted, so they they went to court to be prosecuted. Out of three three hundred and four out of four hundred one, and then the, the losses for those cases was uh, had a value of one hundred twenty million dollars. So it's, it's you know those are big big numbers. Yeah. Um. So so here's what they're some of the things they're doing. Like you have these um, rings of people out there that create fraud and they they create these fake car accidents. So a couple of things they do is um, one of them is called like a swoop and squat. Um, where this is a swoop and squat technique is where a vehicle will suddenly cut off, you know, jump in front of your car and lock up its brakes, and then you rear in that car. And typically that car will have three or four or five passengers, and they're all going to be claiming they have neck and back injuries, and they're all going to go rack up uh, bills with the doctors and try to make huge claims against the insurance company. Another one of the little tricks they try is like, you know, the situation when you have two left-hand turn lanes side by side. Yeah. If you're on the if you're on the inside lane closest to the to the median, what they will do is if you make that left-hand turn and you just ever so slightly stray into the outside lane, they will clip you on the outside of that car on purpose, and they'll claim that they have a a sideways mechanism of injury where you hit them on the side and they their head went back and forth and now they've got some injury to claim for doing that so those are two of the tricks that are out there from from these groups that are committing fraud you know that's really unfortunate that people do that and it makes it harder for people who really are victims of accidents um, and it drives up insurance rates for everybody um, but it's amazing to me that these these guys can do that because you have to have so many players involved that are intentionally committing the felony of insurance fraud and risking jail. You know, the lawyer knows, the the, the people in the car know. The, it's just terrible. Well, you, you talk about jail. There was a famous case a couple of decades ago in Los Angeles where it was exactly what Mark just described on that uh, swoop and squat, where the car swooped in front of a tractor trailer, got rear-ended, and the car burst into flames and killed all of the occupants. Oh, my God. And it turned out that the ring of attorneys, really these bad attorneys and these fraudulent chiropractors and some other medical providers all ended up getting indicted, and some of the lawyers actually went to jail for murder. Wow. Well, he deserved it. All right. With that, we're going to have to wrap up the show. This was a good show this week. I look forward to our show next week where we'll do some more uh, legal news and current events. We'll have an excellent expert. You're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice radio show. Remember to check out our website at www.kuziklaw.com. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.